Jesus, I just want to thank you for your kindness, for your goodness to us. Uh, Peter stood up in front of the crowds that Pentecost day and spoke to them. And here we are 2,000 years later, reading those same words. You are still speaking to us. You are still shaping your church. Uh, you still have plans. You are not finished. This is headed somewhere. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your goodness. All of this is for you. All of this is yours. And we thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. My name is Will. And um, hi, everybody. And uh, things to know about me. Uh, I'm, I look a bit like Johnny Hughes, but I'm not Johnny Hughes, <laughs> is the first thing. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Um, uh, I have a wife called Vicky, who's over there. Sorry to embarrass you, Vicky. I always do that. I don't mean to. And I have uh, four children. Four, isn't it? We've got four now, including that little one over there. Um, and uh, this morning, what I want to talk to you about is about this passage from um, uh, Acts 2. Peter addressing the crowd at Pentecost. And um, Bishop Paul came to us last week and spoke to us about Pentecost. And um, what he told us to do was to wait, uh, which isn't always the most helpful thing as a church leader because, um, you know, you want to do things. And um, what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at Pentecost and this, the Spirit came upon the church. Jesus uh, lived a life, died a death, rose from the dead. And the disciples, in complete and utter fear and confusion, waited, as he told them to do, not knowing what was going to happen, a bit like we're doing this morning, just waited and waited and waited because they really believed that Jesus was not done yet. And so they waited around and they did a bit of praying and they worshipped like we did, but they probably didn't know what was going on. And then the Spirit came and the Spirit was poured out upon them. And all sorts of crazy things happened. And visually, it was very stunning. Emotionally, it was very stunning. It was like nothing they had experienced before. And then they started to think, this is exactly what God said he would do. And what happened on that day was that God, it's like he threw a kind of rock into the water. And the ripples kind of rippled out. And the ripples rippled out and affected the whole of that region, the whole of Jerusalem, all of the people who were there. And it was a big gathering, as Bishop Paul told us. Everybody who was everybody was in Jerusalem. It was packed to the rafters. This was the moment God chose. And he threw a rock into the water. The ripples came out. And what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is what happens? What happens when the Spirit falls upon the church? What does it look like? What does it look like for God's spirit, his means of power in the world, his spirit? What does it look like when that comes upon the church? Not just when, does, what does it look like when the church is good, when the church is successful. What does it look like when God is in control? What does it look like when God is doing God's thing? And that's what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. What, through the book of Acts, what happened in the book of Acts after Pentecost? What did it look like? What would a spirit-filled church look like? Can I have that first slide? And the first thing I want to say is that a spirit-filled church is a church that repents. A spirit-filled church is a church that repents. Verse 36 to 38, we get to that bit. Peter reaches the climax of his sermon, the climax of his preach. And everybody says, so what? What do we do? What do we do? You've, you've told us this amazing news that we've seen the spirit at work. We've seen the spirit fall. What do we do? And Peter's response Peter's response in verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That's the response. When the Spirit of God moves, when the Spirit of God fills the church, the response is repentance. The response is repentance. And so a Spirit-filled church, when God is in control, a Spirit-filled church is a church that repents. Now, I need to unpack that a little bit. I know I need to unpack that a little bit. Because um, some of you are like, geesh, repentance? Really? Is that it? Like, Johnny, we've had some good stuff from Johnny. And now, like, Will comes up and he's going to talk to us about repentance, you know. It was like a battle getting out of the house this morning with the kids. And I'm here and I've come to, like, receive something. You know, the five ways to know Jesus, right? The ten spiritual disciplines, whatever it is. I want something. And here you are talking to me about this big R word, repentance. And for some of us, the image of repentance might be like sitting in the confessional, right, talking to the priest. Um, Repentance is saying sorry. And it's a bit of the service that we kind of have to do. We have to get through. I'm sorry, Jesus, for what I've done. I did some naughty things this week. There's good and bad, and I did some bad, and I'm really sorry. Now can we move on? For many of us, that is our understanding of what repentance is. And what I want to talk about this morning is that repentance is this far, far bigger concept than that. This far bigger concept than simply saying sorry. It's saying sorry, certainly, but it's so, so much more. And so I want to do that. I want to talk about what repentance is this morning, and then I want to look a little bit about Peter's story, uh, and then I want to tell you about something that happened to me this morning in Cafe Nero, and then I'll finish. So, uh, repentance, repentance, let's go there. What I want to say, can we go to the next slide? Okay, what we see then in verse 36, 38 is really, really significant. I really believe this is significant for this church, and when I was reading um, through the passage um, this week, It was this bit that jumped out at me, verse 36, 38. Uh, What we see is that the Spirit, when the Spirit falls at Pentecost, the Spirit gives Peter the message and the response. He gives Peter the message and the response. So I want to look just very briefly at what the message and the response are. The message, Jesus is Lord, and the response, therefore, repent. The message, Jesus is Lord, therefore, repent. So Peter tells this story. Right, the, the, the spirit falls on the disciples. They're in the room waiting, and the spirit falls upon the disciples. And, um, you know, it's quite a kind of comedy moment in, the, in this book. Everybody looks at them and says, these, these people are drunk. Like, what was going on was so crazy that they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, students. At 9 o'clock in the morning, they were drunk. And everybody's like, this is crazy. What's going on? And Peter then has to explain why this is happening. And he explains it by going through the whole of the Scriptures, the whole of the Old Testament. If you don't know your Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament before Jesus, Jesus' life, and then after Jesus. And he says to them, you know, before Jesus, God spoke about this happening. He spoke about this happening. He said that there would be a day, there would be a day when he would pour out his spirit. For the, for the Jewish people of which Jesus was one, there was this deep, deep faith that the, create, that the, the world wasn't random, that it was created by a creator God, who loved it, and who, when that world became broke, when that world rejected God, said no to God, God did not abandon the world, but God had deep, deep love for the world. Johnny spoke about that a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so what God did was raise up a people, the Israelites, and through the Israelites, he was going to save the world. And he promised that there would be a day, there would be a day in the future when all sadness, all brokenness, all hurt, all pain would be ended. 
That was what he promised. He didn't promise just to kind of clutch a few people and bring them out of the world. He promised that he was going to fix the problem, fix the world. Where the world is broken, he was going to heal it. Uh, Where there was darkness, he was going to bring light. And he said, the way I'm going to do that is through my servant and through the spirit. I'm going to send my servant, the Messiah, and then I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're male, female, young, old, whether you've messed up your life, whether you've got a beautiful life, it doesn't matter. I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody. And so here are these disciples, this ragtag bunch of people, sat around in this room waiting, and the spirit is poured out. The spirit is poured out. And Peter says to everybody, he says, this is what he said was going to happen. Do you remember? This is what he said was going to happen. There was a day when God was going to do this. That is what is happening. And then he goes on and he says, that Jesus Christ, he says, that Jesus Christ, who you, and he's talking here to the Jewish people, uh, he's talking to the Jewish leaders particularly and the rulers, the people who are in charge, he's saying, you put him to death. There was a great man, Jesus Christ. He did signs and wonders. You put him to death. But you know what? And what an amazing verse that is. What an amazing verse. In verse 24, you put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. I love that verse. You put him to death, but he rose from the dead. Not, not, because, um, not just because he had great power, not just because something miraculous happened, but because it was impossible impossible for death to hold him nothing could hold him down the worst enemy the final enemy death could not hold him down and so he he rose from the dead and then he goes on to talk about how the old testament spoke about resurrection and he says you know we had all these great leaders king david was a great leader but he never rose from the dead we had all these great prophets they never rose from the dead but this jesus he rose from the dead you want to know why the spirit is being poured out you want to know why we're talking funny You want to know why all these miracles are happening? It's because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. They put him in a tomb, and three days later, he came to life. That's what's going on right now. There is a new reality. There is a new existence, a new way to be human. That's what's going on right now. That's why the Spirit has been poured out. That's the message. And then he gets to verse 36. And I want to say, church, this is so, so significant for us. If you're new to faith, if you're old to faith, we need to keep coming back to this. Verse 36. Therefore, he says, after all of that, after all that story, I've just kind of tried to do my best to summarize. He says this. Therefore, all of you, be assured of this. No one thing. No one thing. God has made Jesus Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has made This Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you're wondering what Christianity is, if you're wondering what the message of Christianity is, I want to say this is it. This is the earliest version of it we get at Pentecost. That day on Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, and everyone says, what's going on? And Peter, this is how Peter summarizes it. This is his summary, executive summary. God made Jesus, who was dead, alive, and has made him Lord and Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God made Jesus who was dead alive and made him Lord. That's it. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, right, Johnny? That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. That's what Trinity Church is all about. That's what we live for. That's the reality. That's the good news. And there's so much else that flows from it. Trust me, your salvation flows from it. Your healing flows from it. 
Justice flows from it. Good news for this city flows from it. Good news for every human being alive flows from it. But it starts from this reality, that Jesus Christ, who was in the tomb in the darkness, was raised from the dead by God, is alive and is Lord. That's the good news. That's the good news. Amen? Jesus Christ, who was in the tomb, is alive. That's the good news. That's what Peter says. And the question, how do we respond, flows from that good news. Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he's more than that. Jesus is a great moral example, but he's more than that. Jesus is a great friend, but he is more than that. He is your savior, even, but he is more than that. He is the Lord of the whole world. He is the king of the whole world. There is a new reality. Injustice will not have the final word. Jesus will have the final word, and he is king, and he is just. Brokenness will not have the final word, because he is king, and he is just. I've just seen my son projectile vomit. That will not have the final word. (laughs) Jesus Christ is Lord of the whole world. It will not have the final word. It will not have the final word. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the Lord. And you know this word gospel, we talk about this word gospel a lot. We need to go out and share the gospel. We need to go out and share the gospel. The word gospel is this, is this Greek word, euangelion. And euangelion simply means good news. And what would happen, let me just say this. What would happen was you'd have a great king, like a Caesar or an emperor or something, and they would go and win a battle. So they'd go off to, I don't know, uh, some foreign land, right? They'd win a battle. And what would happen was they'd try and get the news back there because, I don't know if you know, but in the old days, they didn't have smartphones. In the old days, they didn't have technology. Do you believe it? They did not. I know, we're on a road of progress, people. And uh, in the old days, they didn't have that. So what they would have to do is they would have to send somebody back to the city, back to the capital city, to tell everybody what would happen. Everyone in the city would know there was a battle and everyone's like waiting for the result. What happens? Like on election night on Thursday, right? We're waiting for the result. Some of us stayed up, some of us went to bed, but we're waiting for the result. The battle was over here and what would happen was they'd send someone, like, the, like Marathon, right? Marathon, that's where that comes from. He, this guy ran 26 miles dressed as a mobile phone and he ran back <laughs> and he came to them and he said the battle was won. That's what Euangelion is. It's the good news it's the good news that the battle has been won. And that, that's, that person, that guy dresses a mobile phone, or whoever it was, would come into the town center with a megaphone and declare, the battle is won. Ring the bell, shout from the rooftops, the battle is won. And what the euangelion, the good news, the word gospel means is exactly the same word. That's what the first readers of this would have had in mind. Euangelion, the battle is won. And the guy runs back and declares it. And what Peter is doing here is he's that guy. He's that messenger. Let me tell you the good news. The battle is won. You tried to kill him. There was a couple of days. There was a couple of days of darkness. The greatest human being who ever lived was killed and in a tomb. But let me tell you the good news. Death could not hold him. He is Lord of the world. That's the proclamation. Jesus is Lord. Right, here's here's the response then. Okay, Jesus is Lord. What do we do? Right, what do we do? Are you asking that question? Jesus is Lord. What do we do? What's the response? Church, what's the response? What do we do? And Peter did say, we shall run a nine-week course looking at who is Jesus, and we'll go through all the doctrines, and at the end, we'll go away for a week. How long is it? eight-week course, and at the end, we'll, oh, damn, I should have done my revision, Uh, and at the end, you know, we'll go away for a weekend, we'll look at the Holy Spirit. Uh, He didn't say that. He didn't say that. Let's do a course. He didn't say, here's the doctrines. What's the response, people? And they, and Peter said, repent 
and be baptized. And it makes sense, is what I want to say this morning. It makes sense, church, because if the message is Jesus is Lord, then the only possible response is repentance. Repentance. It's the only possible response. This, um, this word repentance, we go to the next slide. <clears throat> this word repentance, I'm just going to talk about this really quickly. Uh, repentance, the word that Peter uses here is this word metanoia. Can everybody say metanoia? Metanoia. It comes from two words. Noia is like head, knowledge. Meta is um, like turning, transformation, like metamorphosis. Metanoia, change of mind, turn. And the word really means like I'm going this way. I'm going this way. I need to turn. 180. That's 180, isn't it? I'm going to turn 180. I'm going one way and I'm going to turn. What Peter is not saying is just say sorry for the stuff you've done that you've been naughty with. What he's saying is you're going one way. Jesus is Lord follow him, right? You're going this way, Jesus is Lord, therefore turn around, follow him. We've got this writing from this guy called Josephus, and Josephus was writing at the same time that this was kind of written, a couple of, couple of uh, um, sort of 10, 20 years later. But he writes in Greek, so it's quite interesting to see the way that this guy Josephus uses language. This guy Josephus was sent by a Roman general to go and talk to some rebels, right? So these people were rebelling against Rome, and, they, and the emperor said, Josephus, I want you to go and talk to them because you talk their language. And so Josephus goes and talks to these rebels over here. And we've got, this, we've got his writings. And uh, he says to them, he says to the rebels, you guys are rebelling against Rome. You need to metanoia and follow me. Right? You need to repent and follow me, is what Josephus says to them. And what, again, what he's not saying to them, obviously, is, you guys over here, you rebels, you need to stop being naughty and you need to say sorry. What Josephus is saying is this. Listen, you guys are living in a reality where the emperor is not the emperor. Right? You are doing your thing. You are going this way and the emperor is going this way. You are living as if he was not the true king. You are living as if you were the king. You are living as if you are the kingmakers over here in this community. What I need you to do for me, and listen very carefully, I need you to turn around. I need you to make that king your king. Stop it. Stop what you're doing and accept his kingship. That's what Josephus is saying to them. And that's exactly what Peter is saying to these people. The spirit has been poured out. What do we do? And Peter is saying, you are going this way. You need to turn around and follow him because he is the Lord. He is the king. He is the true king. That reality is the true reality. This reality, whatever this is over here, will not have the final word. This is going to end. This is going to end. The reality that will be left is Jesus' just, peaceful, kind rule. That's the reality that will be left. Which way are you going, Peter is saying. You're going this way. I need you to turn. And so what I want to argue this morning is that repentance, and here's the words I've used, is about making Jesus' agenda our agenda. It's about making his agenda our agenda. If there's a song that's being heard, you know you have like your headphones in, you're listening to a song and you sort of drown out all other songs. And sometimes, every now and again, you're sort of in a cafe or something, you've got your headphones in, you're listening to your music, but there's other music playing and it's a distraction. Sometimes what you need to do is just turn up that, those headphones, right? Turn up that music so that all you're hearing is that song. It's about making his song the loudest song in our lives. Repentance is about making his agenda our agenda, about making his song the only song that we're hearing. Amen? 
And so repentance is about rejecting one way and accepting another way. Rejecting one way of doing things and accepting another way of doing things. That's what repentance is. We, we reject brokenness. We reject her. We reject injustice. Right? We, we reject the way that women are pre- presented and projected in our society. We, we reject that way. And we accept a different way. We reject, we simply reject some of the narratives that are spewed out by some um, of our politicians. We, we have to reject, we don't reject them, but we reject some of those narratives and we accept a different way. We reject the negativity and the cynicism around the church. We reject it and we accept a different way. We reject and we accept. We reject brokenness and hurt and pain and injustice. We simply reject that that has to be the way and we accept a different way of things. We reject and we accept. Okay. Baptism. I'm just going to talk, because we're going to do some baptisms in the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to talk very long about this. But just, just to say, you know, Peter says repent and be baptized. Those two always go together. In the Christian mind, baptism is repentance. Repentance and baptism go hand in hand. What do you do in baptism? For, for the early Christians, what you do is you go down into the water, you die to yourself, and you come up out of the other side. Right? You go down into the pit. I'm going to die to my agenda, my rules, the way I want things to be, and I'm going to come up the other side and live for him. That's what baptism is, and we're going to be doing that in a couple of weeks, and I know John is going to talk a bit more about that when he gets to it. He doesn't know that yet, but he is. So baptism, repent and be baptized. Die to your agenda. Make his agenda your agenda. Okay, let's, let's just ground this uh, a little bit in Peter's story. Can I go to the next slide? <clears throat> okay. Um, I've got here a... Um, a soapbox or a, a, a box thing, like um, I think it's a port, originally port. And what I did, church, is I stole this from John Lewis, from Waitrose. And uh, I used to, um, other uh, shops are available, and um, I used to work at Waitrose, and um, I used to work, I worked one Saturday in the wine department, and they had all these lovely wooden boxes, and so um, they told me, you might be able to take one, but maybe just ask. And um, I didn't ask, and I took one. Repent. Repent. But I am, a, you know, John Lewis is a partnership, so, you know, what is theirs is mine. And um, what I want to do is just talk a little bit about Peter. And um, what we see about, what strikes me about Peter is the way that he lives this narrative of repentance. He lives repentance. Okay, that's what I want to say. He lives repentance. And we see it from the word go. Okay, so verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Peter stood up, okay, got on his soapbox, and he addressed the crowd. That's what he did. He addressed the crowd. And um, what, I, what I love is that he then gives this beautiful, eloquent sermon. It's, it's profound. It's beautiful. He talks about his own experience. He talks about what he's seen. He Basically, what Peter does is he puts himself out there. He, he just, he, he stands up, he witnesses to Jesus. Now, a couple of chapters ago, and I'll come back to this, he, he hides away. Because to proclaim Jesus in this, in this time, in this context, is very, very dangerous. To say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord, right? To say to the Jewish authorities, the Messiah has come and he was that guy that you killed, that doesn't go down particularly well. And here he is doing that on a box in front of everybody, standing on the soapbox, Do you not want to have that sort of existence? That kind of existence where you're just not fearful? Where you're not scared what people think of you? Where you're just able to stand there and be yourself? 
there's a writer that I really like, and he talks about the undefended life. Do you not just want to have an undefended life? You know, we have these defenses. We kind of come in and we're, we're defensive. My son at the moment, one of my sons is, he's just a little bit finding it a little bit anxious that we've got this new baby and he's not sure what's going on. And so what he does is he puts a Spider-Man costume on. That's his defense. And you might see him running around a bit later, his, his defense. Uh, and it's kind of sweet. And I said it to someone the other day and they, they just, they sort of questioned me and they said, you know, we all do that. We all put a costume on. Right, we all put... You know, it's not a Spider-Man costume. It's not a Superman costume, but it's a costume. Right? We, all, we all care about what our Facebook photo is, profile is. We all care about what people are seeing on Instagram. We all put a, a kind of a story, a narrative of ourselves out there. We all, we're all living a defended life in some way. Do you not just want to have an undefended life? Just to not be scared what people think of you, to be worried what people think of you, to be able to sort of walk into church on a Sunday, just be honest, be authentic, not have to, to care about that. Peter lives that kind of existence. But like I say, it wasn't always his story. It wasn't always his story. Some of you might know that Luke and Acts are part of the same book. Luke, the guy Luke, wrote Luke, and then he, wrote, he, wrote, he gave his name to that one. I'm not sure quite why. And then the second one he called Acts. Um, and so Luke, Acts sort of go hand in hand. And so what we see is the sort of it's the same story continuing through. And so if you really want to understand Peter, look at his story through Acts and then read it uh, through Luke and then read it through Acts. Here's what I found really interesting. I went back and looked at that bit where Peter denies Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial. And someone says to Peter, um, Do you know him, don't you? You know him. And Peter says, never knew him. Not me. Got the wrong guy. Never knew him. And what I find really interesting about that, if you go and look at Luke 22, is Luke mentions the word sitting twice. So he says there's this gathering, and Peter goes, and Peter, it says, sits. Peter sits down. He says it, he makes it twice, and you know when a gospel writer says twice, they're not mucking around. He sits down. In Acts, Peter stands, and in Luke, he sits. Sitting, like a posture of fear. He's defended. He's defended. What we see in Acts is he's undefended. He stands. Here, he's terrified. Here, he is terrified. Here, he stands. And uh, what happens to him? What, what's the difference? What's that journey? That journey for Peter is a journey of repentance. That's what it looks like. To move from shame, guilt, pain, to move into freedom. That's what repentance is. As you make his agenda the most important agenda, it, it moves you into freedom. It makes you free, undefended. And we do that every day. We do that every day. Peter, full of fear, full of shame. He's just rejected Jesus and he moves. And someone said to me this week, well, it's interesting you're saying that about Peter. Have you ever noticed the similarities between Peter and Judas? I said, what do you mean? And, um, he said, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Bo I've never thought of this. Both of them reject Jesus. Judas and Peter, both are exactly the same. They both reject Jesus. They both reject Jesus' way. And, and Judas ends up on this tragic story of remorse, regret, guilt, eventually leading to his own death, his own suicide. He can't handle the, the, the pain of the guilt. Peter is in exactly the same position, remorse, regret, guilt. What happens with Peter? He goes through repentance. Listen, this isn't repentance. Some of you might be sat there this morning thinking, like, this isn't me. This isn't me. Um, there's too, I'm, I'm too guilty, too painful, too, too ashamed. This isn't, I can't imagine this, right? 
I really, I want to encourage you this morning to remember Peter's story and remember that Peter is in exactly the same position. And there's a choice not to become perfect. There isn't a choice to kind of drum up the power, drum up the passion, the willpower, the fervor, the fervency to get up on the box. That's not what's happening there. That's not his story. He's not brave. He's not courageous in that sense. All he does simply is repent. He, makes, he chooses to make Jesus' agenda, his agenda. A word Amy used earlier when we were praying was surrender. What Peter does is simply surrender. That's why he's able to stand on the box. Not because he's got the power inside of himself. He just surrenders himself. He says, Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. I've let him down. I'm guilty. I'm sinful. I'm broken. I was sitting, cowered in a corner. That's his story. That's the only way to stand on the box. What, what narrative are you living by? What narrative is your agenda that's stopping you from having this sort of existence? What is it? Is it shame? Is it pain? And the Jesus story, Peter realizes, is so much greater than that. The Jesus' story is that no matter how broken you are, how ashamed you are, he is Lord. And in his kingdom, there is peace and justice and healing. And therefore, in that power, we can stand up and live this undefended life. What Peter does is this. He puts Jesus on the box. He puts Jesus on the box. If you want a definition of what repentance is, repentance is simply putting Jesus on the box. Stepping off it. Stepping off of the, the desire to be on it. Stepping off the desire to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be powerful, to be important, to be significant. And putting Jesus on the box. He puts Jesus on the box. And only as he puts Jesus on the box, only as he puts Jesus on the box, does he have the power to stand there himself. Nick, can we go to the next slide? Okay. Um, individuals who repent, a church that repents, and then I'm just going to end. <clears throat> okay. Individuals who repent. Um, yesterday, my wife was with my daughter, Iris, and um, we were doing this thing that they have to do for school. And the thing they have to do for school is they look at a picture of a seaside scene, and they have to say what they see, what they think, and what they imagine. It's a brilliant piece of pedagogy, and we're going to use it in kids' church. What do you see? What do you think? What do you imagine? I see some people on the beach. Uh, I think that they're having a good time. I wonder if they're playing there because their mum and dad said they could. Something like that, okay? And Vicky was trying to explain it to Iris by talking about mixing a bowl. Vicky was making some pancakes, and she said to Iris, what do you see? And Iris was like, oh, pancakes. And then she was like, what do you think? And Iris was like, oh, I don't know, like you're making pancakes? And what do you imagine? And we were both sort of trying to like make it really. And then Iris just said this to Vicky. She just said, mom, can I, can I just mix the pancakes? Can I just mix the pancakes? And it just struck me, this beautiful image of a little girl saying, I don't want to talk about the thing. I just want to do it. Right? I don't want to just talk about it. Listen, this thing, this Christian faith, is not just sort of understanding Jesus. It's not talking about him. Repentance is not just something we understand. It's something we are invited into. Grasp the bowl, mix it, is what Iris was saying. I just want to do it. I just want to do it. And so what I want to say is this. It is not something to be understood. It is something to be entered into. It's not a doctrine to be grasped. It's something that we simply live. It's not, um, Jesus is not kind of a concept that we get our heads around. It's something we move into. Some of us today are sitting here thinking, I can't do this. I can't repent. Repent? That's not for me. I don't understand it. There's confusion. Some of us, I know, are experiencing incredible pain, incredible loss, uh, confusion, that worst kind of pain, you know, where you're not sure what's going to happen next. 
Some of us are in that place and we're questioning, can I really do this? Can I really turn up to church and be part of this? And what I want to say is if Jesus is Lord and repentance is the solution, you know, Peter doesn't say you enter in by understanding it. He doesn't say you enter in by believing it even. He says you enter in just by entering in. Right, just grasp the bowl, move into that reality. We don't understand it. I don't understand everything. Johnny and Amy don't understand everything. The most, you know, the person who's been in the church the longest here, they don't understand everything. They've just made a decision to put Jesus on the box and live with the reality of that. Live as if that were true. Live in the light of that reality. And individuals who repent, individuals who repent. Church who repents. What would it look like to be a church that repented? Um, Cafe Nero then, and then I'm done. So this morning, uh, I didn't have much to say. I'm really, really tired, and our son has not been sleeping all that well, so I was really tired. And I went to the cafe this morning to try and get some thoughts down. And when I was in the cafe, the whole cafe was empty. There was no one there except for me. And, and this guy came and sat down like right next to me. And I thought, this is so weird and annoying. <laughs> right? I, just, I wanted some peace. I wanted some peace. And... Um, I, so he came and sat down next to me and he turned to me and I had my Bible open and he said, good book. <laughs> good book. And so, you know, right? And that's so why I said, uh, thanks very much. And I can see that you've, hello, you better go and tell the kids. Uh, and I said, yeah, thanks very much. You've got a Bible too. And uh, we got chatting and uh, here's what it turns out. This guy is a guy who lives in St. Anne's and uh, he works with churches, and I won't go into too much of that detail, but he said this, he said, you know, what, what, what's your church? And I said, I'm up the road uh, in the auction house, the old auction house, and he goes, I know that building, and I said, how do you know that building? And he said, um, oh, we go to that building, we pray in that building. Um, we, we, we were going past about a couple of years ago, me and my wife, two years ago, and uh, we saw that building, and we thought, like, we thought that building is going to be significant for Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is Lord, and that building is going to play a part in it. That's what he said. And so we, just, we rung the number that was on the hoardings and we got an invite to come in and we prayed in the building. Friends, God is ahead of us. That's the first thing I want to say. God is ahead of us. And that's like the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh story we've heard like that where Jesus has been ahead of us and has been doing that. But here's what really fascinated me about him and this is what I want to say. He was not interested in our church. Right? He was not interested in our church and it struck me. And I was asking him like, which church do you go to? Do you go to Trent? Do you go to Hart? Do you go to an Anglican church? Do you go to a church in St. Anne's? He was not interested. He couldn't care. He goes around different churches, all right? Now, I'm not saying the church is unimportant, but he did not care. He did not care about Trinity Church. He did not care what was going on in our building, whether we had white walls or blue walls or whatever. I was trying to kind of sell it. I was like, we're this new church in town. We've got all these ideas. He was not interested at all. Here's what this guy was, fascinated by Jesus. That's what this guy was, fascinated by Jesus. Whether it's this church or that church, he could not have cared less. He was fascinated by Jesus. That's what interested him. Repentance, making his agenda our agenda, is being fascinated by Jesus. That is why we are doing these practices every day. That's what it looks like for us right now. Is because we want to become more fascinated by Jesus. Amen? That's what we're working for, to be fascinated by Jesus. That's why we will put a big emphasis on worship in this place. And spend time in worship. That's why we're doing Third Wednesdays, because we, have, we want to become more fascinated by him. Because we, as we become, listen, worship is simply just putting him on the box, right? 
That's what you do again and again and again as discipline. And some of you come in here full of pain, but you choose to put Jesus on the box, not to make light of your pain, not to say that it's not significant. It's deeply significant and he cares, but to say that only in that reality is there going to be healing. Only in that reality is there hope. And so I choose today to worship him. We will be exuberant in worship. And the third thing is we're going to not do a great deal. Right? Some of you are saying, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? All of which are great ideas and God is in them. Hold them. But for now, we're not going to do a great deal. That's what it looks like for us right now to put Jesus on the box, is to not do much. Because here's the thing. If we do groups, if we do run cafes, if we run all sorts of mad things John and I have come up with, if we do all of those things, the danger is this becomes about church rather than about him. And repentance, church, this is what Peter is saying, repentance is simply making our agenda his agenda, making our agenda his agenda. And our agenda is our plans. Our agenda is our groups we've got. Our agenda is what we want this building to look like. Our agenda is the coffee. Our agenda is the lights. Our agenda is all of this stuff, all of which might be great, but it's not necessarily his agenda. We want to have his agenda, not our agenda. And so we need to repent, be fascinated by him so that he might become king. He might be Lord in this place, not us, not Trinity Church. He might be Lord in this place. Amen.